Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Bill Woolsey, founder and president of 5-2 Network. Bill is a pastor by training based over in the US. He's also an entrepreneur and now spends time speaking with nonprofits about taking entrepreneurialism to their missions. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with Bill, and I've no doubt that there is something in this interview for everyone. He's a charismatic leader, and it was a real privilege having him on the show. So this episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, here is Bill Woolsey speaking to me about entrepreneurialism in the charity sector. I'm delighted to be joined for Charity Chat with Bill Woolsey, founder and president of 5-2 Network. Bill, welcome to Charity Chats. Samuel, thank you so much. Thanks for, for having me. And I look forward to, uh, to talking to you and uh, bringing some value to all of your listeners. And I, I'm sure you will. And I, I've, I've kind of followed some of your work recently, so I know that uh, our listeners are going to love you. Um, maybe if we can start with just explaining a little bit about your background and how your values and upbringing have shaped your passion and the work that you do today. Sure, Samuel. So I'm a pastor by training. I've been a pastor since 1987, but uh, I came out of a family that uh, my, you know, my dad was a fireman and a contractor, and my mom was a real estate agent and entrepreneur type. And so I was very much exposed to that. Uh, I guess you'd say a small business or, you know, kind of have to figure out where your income is going to come from. Sure. And uh, but in in the ministry as a pastor, I was always the guy who led all of the startup initiatives in congregations. And then in nineteen ninety seven, my family and I, after I'd been a pastor for nine years, we were asked to start a church in West Houston. Uh, I'm from Texas. I live outside of Austin. My wife was from Houston, so we were finally getting to get back home. Right. And. Uh, we we got to do that. It was an incredible experience for us. Uh, seven families. We launched the ministry. Lots of support, uh, and uh, approached it like a business. Very much. Mm-hmm. We had a a startup loan. We had a line of credit. You know, so we kind of took those uh, understandings from business and applied them into ministry. And uh, God really really blessed that. We grew from six or seven families to over sixteen hundred across three locations over the next uh, 20 years. And and then in the process, uh, I started helping people who were starting things, especially pastors, but then moved into really focusing on uh, just lay people, people who were Christian and they wanted to use their entrepreneurial gifts and bless their communities, kind of see what their calling was, you know, and help them sure. succeed. We wanted to do that. So, you know, that's some of the, that's how I got to where I am. And uh, we started this network in '09, and I started leading it full time in 2015, and left the local, the local parish. So, I guess my values, though, that you know, again, <clears throat> watching my parents uh, kind of figure out, uh, you know, how to how to work for themselves and how to create uh, income. But as we we homeschooled all of our kids, and so one of the things we taught them was how to turn their passion into pay. Right. Uh, yeah. And and so because if we can get you in the things you love doing mm. and help you see how to generate, you know, provide for your family, how God can do that, 
Uh, it's very fulfilling. So that was a huge part of my life. That's something I, I really focus on helping others. And, but then I think the other, the other value that drives me is the, uh, from Ephesians 4, equipping the saints for the doing the work of ministry and, and really investing in people. Uh, you know, so we've helped start a whole lot of ministries, a whole lot of nonprofits, businesses through our network and through our training platform. Uh, but the, the, the cool thing is they're not mine, right? They're yours, uh, you know, whoever. And, and so we get to live vicariously through you. I was just talking to a guy yesterday and he's, he's, he's a leader up in Michigan and we've helped start a lot of ministries up there. And he was like, Oh, it's so cool to see the stories. And, and I said, yeah, it's fun. Cause we get to celebrate the stories. And then it's kind of like being grandparent. You get to go home at night, go to sleep, but <laughs> you don't have to worry about all the hard headache stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a, a kind of reciprocal relationship that you have in terms of in the work that you're doing? Do, are you learning more from those people as well that you're teaching or training? Is it kind of a two-way street? It is. Uh, most of the time, I mean, I'm now 60 years old. Okay. So I have, I have done things like this. Hmm. And as a pastor, I had the ability to start small, you know, sure. so I was the youth guy who had to start a youth ministry, but I was protected in this big umbrella of a church, you know, and, and started other things. And so when the people we work with, uh, generally speaking, have entrepreneurial tendencies, hmm. they usually would, they usually don't self-identify as entrepreneur. That's a scary word for them. They, that's almost like, uh, oh no, I'm not that, you know, uh, but they have usually started things. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and so, so when we do work with them, we do bring, I would just say, generally a lot more experience to the table than they have. Sure, sure. So, so we do have this, uh, you know, uh, we help you avoid the landmines or the potholes or what we call fatal failures. Because mm. we want you to fail fast and learn from it, but we don't want you to have a fatal failure because then you're out of the game and we lose a player, you know, God loses a player. So... I would say on one hand, there's that, but where we learn a lot and that's reciprocal is uh, in, in this real time life of what they're going through. And, and we're able then to take that knowledge and apply it in other situations and then network them and say, okay, you know, we know somebody else who's really going through that and they've just experienced it because Obviously, as culture changes, we're, you know, coming out of this pandemic or whenever we're going to come out of that, you know, it's yeah. going to be a part of our life, right? I, I think all those learnings, then it, it transfers across. A lot of times, you know, in startups, and this is what's hard for people who are trying to apply their faith to their new venture or the pastors who are trying to apply, you know, they're trying to start churches and they're seeing how the older models don't work right now as mm -hmm. much as they did. It's hard for people to transfer knowledge. It's hard for Christians, let me just say. Generally speaking, it's hard for Christians to transfer their business knowledge or their, you know, their uh, university knowledge that was more quote unquote secular into and apply it into these sacred work and this calling they have. And that's something that when we see those light bulbs go on in people, that's something that others need to see and hear and experience too. And so that kind of knowledge is also very reciprocal.
How do you define your own entrepreneurial spirit and how has that driven the choices that you've made up to this point? You've spoken a little bit about it already, but maybe are there, is there entrepreneurial uh, spirit coming out of you on a daily basis? It kind of how, how are you looking at the world? You know, these kind of things. You know, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a beautiful question. As I mentioned before, we started the recording. Your questions are, are, are wonderful. Uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul, uh, the, the author there, says that uh, God has given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. And, and those are the offices. It's really, it's kind of called the fivefold offices. But in the Greek, the last two words, shepherd, teacher, it's almost one office. Uh, usually those, those are, are they, they have the, some of the very similar characteristics. They go hand in hand. But those first three, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, those are what are called generative offices, meaning they generate growth. And when you look at a growth curve, a bell curve of any, you know, most organizations, you're going to see that on that front end where they're trying to launch this thing, they've got to have people who are very externally focused and they are just naturally, they, they love to go out. They love to meet people. They, they just kind of innately know how to grow stuff. Those that's the entrepreneurial spirit that I believe God has put in me and also has put in a slice of the population. Now in the United States, and this stat has, has been true for the last just decades, there's only about 12 to 14% of the U S population that would be defined as entrepreneurial. Uh, and so it's not a majority of the people, but it is a very significant number. And so if, if when, when you are that type of person and you find yourself more facing outward than facing inward, you find yourself uh, lighting to, liking to start stuff. Mm-hmm. You, you, you may actually not enjoy it all. Once you start it, you'd rather go on and start something else, you know? So I think that, that's, that for me is uh, that, that entrepreneurial spirit is, is from God. It's used to, to generate growth, create growth. But, that, but then last of all, it's at the end of the day, is used to help people experience God and experience the grace that he has for them. Uh, and so in my life, I would never divorce it from that end thing. And it's what we say in our network. We want to help you start things that, you know, start ventures that help people. Uh, and at the end of the day, we want more people to know Jesus. Uh, that's why we exist as a network. Uh, and so so we want you to understand that and and to not silo your faith in that whole process. And, and really that's why that's, you know, that's where God has led me to where I am today. Uh, I just pour into like-minded entrepreneurial people who are trying to figure out how to live out their calling in in some creative ways. I suppose it's a universal term. Is it kind of like go-getters? And, and that's what I think about when I think about entrepreneur. And I don't know if I'd ever um, identify myself as an entrepreneur or not. Maybe after this, interview bill i might you know but at the moment i guess i kind of my my old concept of entrepreneur maybe maybe it's an outdated concept of the kind of the go-getter probably more in in terms of you know kind of making profits rather than potentially not for profits um but from what you're saying it seems like those skills those those um kind of aspects of a you know kind of a personality that maybe is 
dissatisfied or maybe the positive is looking mm. for something to grow um, is, uh, is something that's found in people that aren't just looking for profit. That's a, that's a, that's a great insight. And in your comment about your perception of the word entrepreneur equals trying to make profit or something like that, you know, uh, that's exactly why we don't use the word in any of our marketing because it, because actually our network is dependent also on donors. So uh, about 50% of our income comes from donors and that allows us to reduce our costs and make our training very accessible to people. Uh, but donors, when they, if they, if they hear us say, uh, we're here to help entrepreneurs, they're like entrepreneurs, those people just want money. You know? So, so, so what your point there now, originally the word entrepreneur came from, it's a French word, and it meant one who undertakes, manages, or assumes the risk of a new enterprise. And it, and it originally meant an uh, undertaker. So if you think about it, you know, it was like uh, today we would use the word undertaker as, you know, somebody who deals with uh, people who are deceased. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so it, it was not until the mid-19th century that the English borrowed the word and it took on this enterprise thing. Sure. So, so really, it's the enterprise aspect that is uh, the, the that makes entrepreneur rich, mm. you know, rich in meaning, as opposed yeah. to just making a profit. And that's why I think it's very applicable for your nonprofit uh, ventures and your nonprofit leaders, because obviously, there your goal, uh, you know, is your bottom line is not money. Uh, where you know, so money is not the mission in a nonprofit, but where there's no money, there's no mission. And so you've got to pay attention to that. But the value you're bringing in a nonprofit, you're bringing the donor value. They're like investing money in you and they're getting a return on their investment. But you're also bringing value to your community and to individuals in the sense that you're providing services or whatever it may be that's helping them experience life in a, in a better way. And so that entrepreneurial spirit of uh, how do we make this thing happen, and how do we how do we manage the risk as we're moving out, and how do we gather the resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That entrepreneurial spirit is incredibly helpful at at, at certain stages, I would just say, or in you know, technically, as an organization grows, as I mentioned earlier, that shepherd teacher role, that's really operations, okay. So when you get to a certain point, you've got to have people who know how to manage the organization and care for it and care for the people, et cetera, et cetera. But a great organization will never lose its entrepreneurial spirit. It will just make sure that it also values the operational side. And because usually a lot of times we'll see in founders that they, they don't have operational skills. They don't think operationally. But if they want to move past what's called founder's trap and have the org grow, they have to value uh, operations and they have to give those individuals authority that at times would even usurp their own uh, because it's that critical. Do you feel that entrepreneurs make good not-for-profit leaders and, and can not-for-profit leaders learn to become entrepreneurial or is it ingrained? Is it, uh, is it in the genes? I, I think your last, the last question, I'm not so sure about at times, I guess that 
We focus a lot, our whole assessment actually that we even do is built on what is called job success analysis, okay? And and we know that if we know what it takes to do a job and if we can map your loves and your passions to that job, then statistically there's a good a greater chance you're going to be more successful, right? Because right. you love doing what the job requires. So when uh, all of a sudden you need entrepreneurial gifts or entrepreneurial activity, I would say that rather than taking a nonprofit leader and forcing them to do entrepreneurial stuff, A, I would want to, I would want to assess them. Maybe they already have it and they don't realize it. And they just feel like they can't do it because there's no permission. They might feel that the board has given put policies in place or I don't know what it is, you know. And, and so I'd want to understand that with them. But if they're not, let's just say they're more of an operations person, they're more internally focused on what's there. And by the way, we see this a lot in churches now in the US, and I know we see it over in Europe, in the sense that most pastors went to seminary to be pastor teachers. And they, it, it, in our ling- lingo, they went to seminary to learn how to care for sheep, Okay. Uh, they did not go to seminary to learn how to hunt wild sheep. All right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. They, they just didn't. That they don't want to hunt wild sheep. You know. But the problem they have is their congregations have grown smaller and smaller and smaller. So the amount of people they have, the you know, in a godly way, the sheep that are there are are fewer. And and then, but if they don't enjoy going out and finding new people. My word to them is, uh, hey, I understand why you went to seminary. I get it. Uh, you need to come to grips with your reality, though, okay, of, of how this congregation is going to survive. So either you're going to have to just suck it up and, you know, and apply, learn some new skills and go do it, or you need to find people who enjoy doing it and empower them and pour into them. And so I would say the same thing to a nonprofit leader. Uh depending upon the stage you're at in your nonprofit. So if you're in the, you know, our, our material, our training focuses on build, fund, and launch. Okay. Those are the three pillars that we focus on. Uh, but if let's say your nonprofit stuck or it's been around for a few years, or you're just finding you're kind of plateaued, you know, then I would say, Hey, are you the founder? Are you the one who got it there? Or did they bring you in or whatever it may be? So I guess long answer to your question, I would say, Depending upon the individual, it could be that they have entrepreneurial giftings or leanings and they just feel they don't have the permission. We want to give them permission and, you know, get that thing moving or uh, they don't. And we need to find those individuals. They need to find those individuals who are more strategic in growth areas than they are. just brought on a vendor who is helping us very much in the whole digital marketing mm, space. Sure. Uh, because, uh, you know, for the last five years before COVID, all of our training was conducted face-to-face around yeah. the U.S. So it was like, we don't have that knowledge, you know, but we know if we're going to push this thing, keep moving forward, we've got to move there. And so let's find those individuals or that company or partner or whatever. And, and now we're Really, and this is the role of that founder. This is the role of that nonprofit leader. I, I literally, Bill Woolsey, uh, 
acquiesces to the decisions, right? I can't trump those decisions that I'm paying somebody to make. Yeah, That's what that nonprofit leader has to understand. It's probably going to feel foreign to them, mm. but they've now the, the role as a leader is what if I hitch my wagon to the wrong horse? Yeah, that's a problem. Okay. So, you know, there is an art there, but. So I, I guess you need to, as a, as a nonprofit leader, you don't need to have that, let's say entrepreneurial spirit, but you need to know enough about it so you can find it in others. So as long as it's in the, in the charity for, or, or whatever the organization is. Well, and, and this is why, you know, when, when we work with you, we want, we start with your values and what, what, because those values of you as an individual or you as an organization, mm. they're really the fence. They're, they're the boundaries of where you're working and playing. And, and so that's why when you build a team, you want to build a team around value and around chemistry and around skills. But values are crucial. As a matter of fact, in early stage startup, people join because of the values. They sense it. Okay. They 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 feel like this is this is contributing some kind of good that resonates with their heart mm. and they want to be a part of it. So values are very critical. And so when you as the leader are realizing you're missing growth engines, you don't have the growth engines you need. Okay. And you may not even know what they are, but you just know something's something's missing. Yeah. When you bring on those people, you're bringing them on though, that they agree with the values. Because when they agree with the values, you can let them go play out here. Okay. And so even this company that we just brought on that we're partnered with, it's, it was just a God thing because the principal used to be a church planter. So mm. he's like, I love what you're doing, you know? And, and so together it's kind of like me, you know, it's kind of like us as we work with startups, we live vicariously through them. When you share values, you get to live vicariously through each other. Uh, and, and yes, so that leader has to value the entrepreneurial energy needed in your organization, and especially if he or she doesn't know how to do it themselves. One thing I remember you saying in the podcast I listened to, when you were speaking about leaders keeping their focus, you used the phrase, and I really like this phrase, and I've used it several times myself since, you can't boil an ocean. I love a good phrase. That was a great phrase. I thought. So from your perspective, when leaders in not-for-profits are making decisions, and I believe personally that leadership can come at all levels of a not-for-profit, right. and how can the most effective leaders best define the right scope of the good they have the power to do? Yeah, that's, that's, it's a beautiful question. And uh, this is probably the one of the biggest struggles the people we work with have mm -hmm. in part because they're, you know, generally they're Christian, they're, they're strong Christians. They want to help everybody. Okay. Sure. Or, yeah. You know, <laughs> and so they, they innately want to do good mm -hmm. and, and they hate it when they can't do good for this person here, uh, uh, you know, whatever it may be. And so when we teach this and we talk about this, and I would say it's the same thing, in your question, we kind of envision a bullseye, all right? And and so the, this, uh, you can't boil the ocean, is you can boil a lot of the ocean if you're a multi-billion dollar company, okay? So if you have a, you've just got so many resources and you're trying to figure out, you know, you're going to take the, 
you know, the, the Indian Ocean as opposed to the Atlantic or whatever. But uh, most of us have to focus on the little creek that's running, you know, through the backyard, sure. especially in early stage. Hmm. And, and so what we're trying to help you do in early stage is get traction and manage resources. Uh, you know, God's given you that for a reason. Now, what that entails, though, gosh, that we're working with a with a large church here in this process, because uh, and and uh, they all said same thing. But we're here to reach everybody. You know, everybody. Well, yes, we're the church. Capital C is called to reach everybody, but you're not going to be able to reach everybody. So, I think what we want to help people understand there is based upon their passion, based upon their geographical setting, their location, the people that God's put around them, mm -hmm. uh, the skills that he's placed in them. Who is that individual that is the bullseye? Now, what we've seen time and time again is that when we reach the bullseye, we're also going to reach other people around there. But we want to be laser focused in that. And if, if you can help your staff or your team or whatever, understand that early on where you're all running and you start speaking the same language. And especially when, uh, you know, we focus a lot on, on customer and who God's calling you to serve. That's the most important thing. And then we reverse engineer everything out of that. When you get that and you really understand this person and their pains and their gains, what they're trying to do in life, how they're trying to succeed and how uh, Jesus innately can help with that, whether it's for profit or not, uh, you start using their language, you start speaking, you become, in essence, a wonderful missionary uh, without even fully realizing what you're doing, okay? And because what you want at the end of the day is whoever it is God's calling you to serve, when they walk in that door or you're out in the community and you have some event to really reach them and whatever it may be, or some marketing that's there happening, you're trying to connect with them, you want them to think this person really knows me. Mm. And, and frankly, from our perspective, they care about me. And, and so often in life, people go through life and never get that feeling, right? We feel like we're being used. We feel like they're talking past us. They don't really understand us. So when you can really get that, especially as a nonprofit, and as a nonprofit, when, the, when, you, get, when you understand the donor and the donor goes, wow, they really understand me, and you understand who you're serving, man, that's magic. It's a divine kind of magic stuff. And I guess part of that entrepreneurialism is, is understanding the way that people are changing. So I suppose we all change. So even in, a, in an ideal scenario where you've got that, it's not resting on your laurels, I suppose, and, and keeping open to change. That, that's, a, that's, that's a very, very true, uh, depending upon, well, and right now, whether you're geographical or non-geographical, if you're in a solely digital world, the world changed, right, in the last 18 months. Uh, I just read today the number of online reviews has skyrocketed. So all of a oh, sudden, yeah. Yeah. people are, are really using, using that. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, so whether you're digital or you're geographic. Now, geographic is especially important. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people used to live local, and for the most part, they still do relate local. Although I was talking to a buddy of mine yesterday and his daughter, he just moved across the country and it had, took a new position. His high school daughter is still a little frustrated about that move. But he said the problem is she can still live in California. They're living in the Midwest because of social media. So she's living sure. with her friends yeah. in California, but that's not allowing her 
to develop new friends and live local. So if you're running nonprofit and you're very focused locally, and most nonprofits are, they're going to have some local constituency. Man, they've got to pay attention to what's changing in that local setting uh, and, and how, especially now, digital is is playing in and where their donors are coming from. And are their donors local or now are they going to utilize digital platforms for donor, right? Because I can support ministries and causes around the world from living outside of Austin, Texas. Uh, so yes, that that's that's very important that they pay attention to their setting, that they are, uh, we, we say you can't reach someone you hate. So they're in love with the people yeah. that they're trying to reach. Uh, I like that. And, That's really good. Yeah. 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 So it, that's, uh, I, you know, another, <clears throat> one other uh, illustration on that. So Habitat for Humanity is huge, at least in the U.S. Uh, and it's huge in building homes for people in impoverished situations. But what's interesting is the Habitat for Humanity chapter in Austin struggles because of the Austin building codes and regulations. Right. Okay. And so here's a place, Austin is principally the San Francisco of Texas, right. uh, that has a huge homeless population problem. Maybe. And here you have an organization who wants to help, okay? Mm -hmm. But it, it's a challenge in Austin to help as opposed to other parts around the country. So again, that whole local, local rules, regulations, demographic, geography issues you're having to deal with, that's what makes nonprofit leadership incredibly difficult because you've got both sides that you're you're trying to pay attention to you have to pay attention to bill from my perspective we seem to be living in a time of heightened culture wars uh, with two vehemently opposed sides on a lot of issues in our society we just spoke about the, um, you, the this again, another thing I'm going to probably kind of retell to a number of people, this idea of you can't reach someone you hate. So, so I thought that was fantastic. So here in the UK, um, and I suppose that hatred is kind of part of these culture wars, it seems. So here in the UK, and I imagine uh, we're not alone in this, probably global, uh, we're seeing more need for charity. And one of the things that enriches my life personally is working with others to seek to meet at least some of that uh, need. With such strong opposing forces in our societies, and yet so many people seeking to bridge those gaps between the haves and the have-nots, is tackling culture wars, do you think, something that uh, not-for-profit leaders should be doing, or is it distracting them from their kind of core focus? Yeah, for their from, from executing on their cause, right? Mm. Fulfilling their cause. Yeah. You know, that's, that is a... That's a, it's a very challenging question in the sense that uh, you used the phrase a couple of times, tackling. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I would probably say it's it's paramount that you understand how to navigate sure. them. Okay. Yesterday we were on a our staff is deployed around around the country, and we were on with uh, one of our partners, and we got talking about the. Uh, you know, COVID vaccine situation and, uh, you know, in uh, 
Florida versus Texas versus New Jersey in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. radically different perspectives <laughs> in those areas. I mean, New Jersey and Texas are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Sure. Uh, and it was we had a relationship on one hand, mm. so we could we could have pretty deep conversation about it, even though we stood on different sides, sure. and even within our staff uh within my staff there are very different views and how do you navigate that okay mm -hmm. and i and i would just come back to your comment and and why we use that phrase you can't reach people you hate uh people know if you love them or not they can tell are are they just a notch in in your belt you know are they just a quota are they just a stat you can give a donor mm -hmm. or do you really love them and if you really love them and respect them, uh, that is going to form the basis then of your behaviors and your actions and your words and your listening and everything else. That's why this values thing is so, 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 so critical, especially in nonprofit leadership, and because it's got to be uh, demonstrated, lived out and protected from the top. And then it has to flow down. So I would just say, Rather than tackle these cultural wars, I would say really understand what your cause is. Who is at the center of your cause? Who who are the donors who who love your cause? Okay. And I would stay laser focused on that cause and be very, very, very careful that you're not expending energy unnecessarily. In, in these skirmishes or these battles. Now, again, it may come to some point uh, that something may happen, legislation may happen, or something that you feel I, we've got to go there because it's so key to our cause. But speaking as a guy who has been a pastor for a long time, and the church has had to figure out how to do ministry in spite of government, right? Uh, and, and even Paul in his early writings talks about honoring the king. And, and this was not a, that was not a government pro-church. I mean, they were like anti, they were anti-Christian, okay, early on, you right. know, and uh, because of Jesus and Caesar and, you know, the opposition mm. uh, perspective. So, but here Paul understood that the church has to operate, Christians have to operate in in ways that on one hand might honor the government, mm -hmm. if you're going to dishonor it, you got to be willing to pay the price. Uh, but at the same time, be creative in figuring out how to stay true to your cause and not get sidelined. Okay. So I would just say culture wars are important to me when they are at the bullseye of your cause. In the US, the church is known for what it's against not sure. for what it's for. Right. All right. Yeah. So nonprofit leaders need to stay true to what they're for. All right. And and really, really own that, communicate that and figure that out as opposed to these other things. There's, there's so much uh, I'm listening to and hearing on other podcasts and conversations I'm having with people around mental health and well-being. And I suppose this influx of conflicting priorities that people have and the noise that people are subjected to 
talk, people talk about social media, but so many other things. I guess it also comes down to that. And maybe that's part of the solution for dealing with some of these things is staying focused and in, in almost as a microcosm um, of the, the work of charities that, you know, the focusing on what they're there to do, their piece of the puzzle, rather than um, being confused by being kind of scattered, scattergun approach to things. And, uh, and I suppose also we've talked about it before in terms of the fundraising is another kind of nuanced part of the charity sector, this kind of uh, not going for the spray and pray, which I think Greg Warner, one of our guests <laughs> before coined, uh, certainly coined for me. And I that's thought a that's, great, such a, that's a great one. I'll that's use such that. such a great thing. Um, but, uh, but going for it, you know, again, being the kind of the supporter centric approach and, and, and as you say, the kind of loving um, loving the people that you're you're trying to build relationships with, it makes so much sense, really, because of course that's what we do in our personal lives. We wouldn't try to build a relationship with someone we hated, would we? So, you know, right. And I, and I think uh, you know your issue about donors and again causes and and loving the cause, loving the person. That's also why, because a lot of times we'll get people coming to us and they're going to start a nonprofit or whatever. And, you know, I, I want to apply for a grant. And I'm like, okay, first of all, <laughs> most granting orgs don't give money to people who have no demonstrated success. Okay. So you're going to, you know, applying for grant is usually not an early stage issue. Hmm. And secondly, granting orgs have causes they believe in. And, and until you find the ones that believe in your cause or align with your cause, you're spending a lot of energy. Sure. Uh, so let's get your story. Let's get who God's calling you to reach. Let's, you know, get some stories of how you've done that. Get your donors on board. Now you're going to probably need a benefactor maybe to get some things going early on and, mm. you know, those relationships. So the whole relationship thing, we can't say enough of how critical that is but that it flows from a true heart of, of your in love with this person. The ministries and the nonprofits, the businesses that we've helped start that we've seen just take off all have that common factor. They've got a founder who's in love with that person who really wants to bring value and good. And they have a donor base then who is just sold out for them as well. Bill Woolsey, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Samuel, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, Love the technology that we can talk across the ocean here. And God bless you and your work. And, and God bless those charities that you're supporting. Big thank you there to Bill Woolsey for sharing his insights and knowledge about entrepreneurs and entrepreneurialism for the charity sector. It strikes me that much of what Bill spoke about could be seen in possibly every charity here in the UK and every charitable group too. We certainly hear about the challenges of founder syndrome and have probably experienced the difficulties associated with getting things done, sometimes anyway, especially in larger organisations perhaps, or when we're relatively junior and have less power to change structures. There are of course good reasons for this too, but perhaps one thing that I'll be taking away from my conversation with Bill is the idea that whether we class ourselves as an entrepreneur or a more process-driven project person, each of these types needs the other. 
One thing that I first loved about the sector when I started my career, and still do 15 years later, is the notion of collaboration. For the charity sector, our resource and budgets are so intertwined with volunteering time and stretching outside of our paid hours, it really does rely on collaboration and goodwill more than any other sector. So whether you're a charity sector entrepreneur with ideas of how to make effective change or the type of person to want to drive those ideas with processes, I hope this episode has helped to remind you that you're needed too to help make a better world for the causes you support and indeed for us all. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across our sector. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axamit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.com. .org.uk, Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Cheerio. Bye-bye.